A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So how do we imagine this went down? Is this Alex Ward in the basement of some Capitol Hill parking lot? being handed some i'm assumingly double-sided hopefully from a conscientious law clerk copy of this opinion so i have multiple theories the first theory is that the justices are older they may not be so technologically inclined maybe somebody accidentally reply all or they put like p to you know send it to their clerk paul and they sent it to politico by accident that's that's my number one theory. My other theory is revenge by like a an angry bitter ex of a clerk. Ooh. I think based on the friends of mine I know who have clerked that that's a very likely scenario. It's not an easy year on the Wait, court. Wait, which one? <laughs> I could see an angry spouse taking some taking some casual revenge depending on who they're clerking for in particular. What's interesting about the article is that it made it clear that they spoke with the person who had knowledge. So, but I I don't like that they automatically assume it's a clerk. There could be justices. There could be all sorts of other people who work there uh, and to immediately think it's a clerk who wants to be an activist uh, is, is definitely plausible, but I don't think it's the only person who could have done it. It's hard for me to imagine that it was a justice only because if it was a justice, then the identity of that justice will inevitably come out at some point. And you have to work with those other people for a long time. I mean, I just, I can't imagine what, if a justice did this, that would do to the, forget collegiality, just not hating each other norms. Uh, and it does seem to me that the justices do try to sort of like each other. That's the sense I get. Um, that, well, that's the only reason it makes me skeptical that it's a justice. Stephen Breyer on the way out the door, just lighting the match and burning it down behind him. Big F Puts you. on his sunglasses, drops exactly. his desk as he walks by, <laughs> hops into his sports car, lays some tracks, and peels away. I like it. That's that's how I'm envisioning this all went down. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Everyone, welcome to Rational Security 2.0, aka Rational Security Reason Never Dies. I'm digging deep into this line of Bond sequels. Thankfully, there are a lot of them. Uh, I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I'm thrilled to be here with my other co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are thrilled to have a special guest with us today law expert uh, and tech expert extraordinaire, Jeffrey Kostov. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Jeff. Thanks for having me. We are thrilled to have you here on Rational Security, uh, one of our stranger podcast endeavors here at Lawfare, uh, but hopefully one of more lighthearted ones. Uh, we have to ask you the question we ask everyone just to spare, uh, to give us a little embarrassment. Have you listened to Rational Security before? Uh, this morning I did. There we go. That's what we're looking for. That is better than a lot of our other guests. I like that you at least listen to it the morning of. Every download counts and we will take it. Slap it right onto our number count right there. This is this is how we're boosting our download stats one episode at a time. Well, we are excited to have you here today for what we are calling the Truth Fairy Edition. As we are wrestling with a number of topics that tread that line between what is truth, what is fiction, and how do we tell the difference? Along with one other topic that we decided just to throw in there for good measure that doesn't really have to do with either of those two things. Our first topic for this week, one letter off KGB, two letters off DGAF or DGAF, which stands for don't give a fuck for anybody listening who may not be aware of what this is. I didn't know how to pronounce that out loud. I didn't realize it till about 10 minutes ago that this might be a problem for this name. I say DGAF. It's pronounced DGIF, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're starting this again. Oh, I'm not going to fall into this trap. 
The Department of Homeland Security has taken heat this week for creating an internal disinformation governance board, or DGB, which partisan critics have rallied against as a federal ministry of truth responsible for policing speech. What's the real story behind this group, and does it warrant all this fervor? Topic two, one bad mother Tucker. A newly published New York Times report documents how Tucker Carlson's Fox News show makes unprecedented use of racist rhetoric and partisan fear-mongering. What new do we learn and what broader impact do we expect this report to have? And topic three, shoots and escalation ladders. While Russian President Vladimir Putin has made a habit of invoking his country's nuclear arsenal in response to Western reactions to his invasion of Ukraine, he so far hasn't made any signs for actually using it. But is this about to change? And how should the United States and its allies prepare to respond? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So the Department of Homeland Security uh, about a, a week ago announced an initiative that it was calling the Disinformation Governance Board, which seems to be sort of an internal working group looking at disinformation, particularly um, around issues concerning the border, particularly information coming from abroad, sort of like a, a task force within the department. It wasn't really clear what particularly they'd be doing. But pretty quickly, it was met with uh, a lot of outrage. I think it's fair to say, largely, though, not exclusively from the right. There are lots of folks in the Republican Party going around saying, you know, we've we've created the Ministry of Truth and it's going to silence Americans. I think it's pretty clear that that is not what this is. And it's it's also worth noting that uh, Nina Jankowicz, who is the person who is leading this effort, has faced a really appalling degree of harassment from the right over this. I think there, there are a lot of different aspects to this question. I mean, one aspect is the harassment um, and the sort of over-the-top vituperative response from the right. I do think, however, maybe the more interesting angle is to talk about the rollout and what this means in terms of what kind of role we think the federal government should be playing and thinking about disinformation, if any. So a uh, disinformation governance board, um, if you squint at it right, perhaps sounds a little ominous. It wasn't immediately clear, as I've kind of hinted, and it's still not entirely clear precisely what this group is going to be doing. And it took a few days, um, longer than it should have, for DHS to kind of roll out a statement explaining uh, what this is going to be doing. Interestingly, on the, the fact sheet that DHS did eventually put out, the, the last bullet reads, um, at Secretary Mayorkas's request, DHS is exploring additional ways to enhance the public's trust in this important work, which if you're starting a working group to address issues of public trust in information is really not the note that you want to end on. So Jeff, you've been writing and tweeting a lot about this. Let me turn it over to you first. What's your view here? Yeah. So I think that how DHS rolled out this initiative, which I agree is most likely a very limited uh, non-ministry of truth function, but the way that they rolled it out demonstrates a real inability to deal with disinformation because they basically did it in a way that would allow a whole lot of disinformation and propaganda to spread online about trying to censor people. And this is really on DHS leadership. They, I mean, it starts with the name, uh, the Disinformation Governance Board, and they say, well, it's about coordinating. But governance is in the name of the title. Like, what? why would you name it that <laughs> if you don't want to govern information? And they basically put nothing out until the fact sheet yesterday. So that was almost a week. Uh, this Homeland Security Secretary went on CNN to talk about it over the weekend after days of just constant conspiracy theories about it. And you would think, OK, he's going to go on and... So, and actually, I should probably pause and say I'm speaking in my personal capacity, not on behalf of the DOD, the Naval Academy, or the Navy, as you can probably tell. So he goes on CNN and he has an opportunity to say, you know, this is a limited initiative and this is exactly what it's going to do. Uh, so Dana Bash asks him, and I am going to give a short dramatic reading. She says, uh, it's still not clear to me how this governance board will act. What will it do? His response. So what it does, it works to ensure that the way in which we address threats, the connectivity between threats and acts of violence are addressed 
without infringing on free speech, protecting civil rights and civil liberties, the right of privacy. And the board, this working group, internal working group, will draw from best practices and communicate those best practices to the operators because the board does not have operational authority. Ladies and gentlemen of the academy, let's just let's just give let's just give Jeff his Oscar already. <laughs> I I mean, saying that he's they're going to communicate best practices to the operators. I mean, maybe in like some bureaucratic mindset that will actually clarify things, but to the general public who has been watching Tucker Carlson and reading Breitbart that has been talking about this ministry of truth, that is not going to settle things. And I, my, my other big problem is that I, I think that even when they release the fact sheet, they continue to call it the disinformation governance board. And you would think there could be lessons learned here. And I, I think that, I mean, Nina Jankowitz, I don't know Nina very well, but I, I feel like she is taking the brunt of re really horrific criticism for something that leadership really has botched. And I, I mean, I, I don't see a way to have this organization continue to operate in, in its current function because it's now no, now it's branded the ministry of truth. Um, and, and I mean, obviously DHS does has dealt with misinformation even before uh, the current administration, but I, I just don't see how the benefits of this particular board will outweigh the harms that are going on right now. But other than that, I don't really have any thoughts on it. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, in some sense though, I wonder then if, you know, how much this matters in the short term in terms of what DHS was trying to accomplish. Because of course, the kind of irony of all of this, maybe this whole thing is just a very elaborate meta exercise in whether or not we can spot disinformation as in the disinformation in the name of the disinformation governance board itself. I don't know, maybe, maybe just all a very complicated Zen Cohen. But it, it does seem that the, the board was never meant to do all that much. I mean, it was just meant to provide some advice, must be outward facing. So like, if the board goes away, it's probably fine because they'll just reconstitute it in some other organizational structure, right? One feels bad for Nina Jankowitz, um, obviously, here. Um, and for what it's worth, I thought her uh, Mary Poppins TikTok disinformation video was actually pretty charming. Uh, so I'm not sure why everyone is so so upset about that. I think the, the, the bigger question or the question I had is, given that there is so much and arguably increasing amounts of disinformation in ways that threaten democratic institutions... What are these democratic institutions supposed to do about it? The irony, of course, being that the more disinformation out there, the more you want someone to deal with it, but the more or the less institutionally capable our governing institutions are to deal with the disinformation because, of course, much of the disinformation is aimed at undermining their authority. This, this seems like a, a paradox that I find increasingly hopeless. Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a genuinely hard problem. And, I mean, one answer is that the institutions that are trying to deal with this need to be better and smarter about how they describe themselves, right? I mean, I do think that, I think Jeff is completely right, that you can see how somebody thought the name Disinformation Governance Board was a good name. It sort of fits with, you know, bureaucraties. But if you say it in a spooky voice on Fox, it's obviously going to really get people's hackles up. And you know, the, the fact that it took DHS so long to explain what this was, the fact that they still haven't really explained what this is in a language that normal people can understand, um, I think is ironically an example of exactly what the problem is, which is that we're, you know, I, I don't want to exaggerate the extent to which sort of the information environment becoming polluted as it were is a you know a new problem or a problem that's specific to the internet age but we are in a situation where information moves fast there are a lot of bad actors there are a lot of people who believe things that aren't necessarily true and the government the US government is in many ways not an institution that is well positioned to respond to that um in part though not exclusively because of the good old first amendment and so if you were designing some kind of effort to address this I don't know what the best way to do that would be. And to be clear, I think that there, you know, there are many ways in which the government has become a lot smarter and more nimble about this kind of thing since, say, 2016, when the Obama administration sort of horrifically botched things. But one way to do it would be to put a little thought 
ahead of time into what it's going to sound like when you roll out this entity that has kind of a vague mandate that nobody can really explain. And when you plop it into a right-wing news ecosystem that at this point has become extremely skilled in generating outrage over anodyne things and directing harassment towards people who were previously, you know, relatively low level. Quinta, before this segment is over, I would invite you to say disinformation governance board in your spookiest voice. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Excellent. I like that. So I have a theory from the perspective of a cynical former bureaucrat and government lawyer as to how they landed on this name uh, that I would like to share with you. Uh, And actually relates to some of the trouble with this issue and some of the weirdnesses of DHS in particular, as I understand from the outside, as somebody who's worked with DHS for a month, but not in it which is that DHS is a very decentralized body with a lot of kind of fiefdoms, like different agencies at one point were independent agencies 20 years ago, pre-9-11, now kind of been rammed together, still have a lot of independent sway, lots of coordination problems with the leadership. But what I suspect we have here is an effort to get high-level buy-in across DHS and to actually empower this body to be taken seriously by components within DHS. Because you read this fact sheet DHS put up, and it says quite clearly, it's a working group. They're saying, oh, the working group does this, the working group does that. But they gave it this big fancy name. And when you give things a big fancy name, you're sending a signal within the bureaucracy. If this were the disinformation working group, no one would get bothered about it on the outside. But frankly, it'd be a lot easier for you know CISA, probably less CISA, but FEMA, CBP, these other offices that are involved to send more junior people because they're like, it's a working group. Why am I going to send my you know, deputy secretary or assistant secretary over or some more senior who actually has a little bit of sway and can speak for the office to engage with this group. And then when they issue recommendations, when they ask for meetings, when they're pushing out ideas, people will be like, okay, that's a great idea, working group. Excellent. I'll wait for some direction from my leadership. The governance board has this cell internally. And especially given that this was not really a public-facing endeavor in the first instance, it makes sense to me to say the main audience for giving it this fairly authoritative sounding name was DHS itself to try and overcome some of these organizational issues. And the fact that's co-chaired by Gen- the Office of General Counsel, I strongly suspect that fed into it well, because this is a very lawyered name, uh, more so than other names, I would think, uh, in a lot of ways. A governance board distracts me very loyally. But you know, it's a sign about the, a lot of the issues that make it hard to coordinate in DHS and that you need an authoritative view, you need high-level buy-in, you need to sound like you're, ta- you're actually having a body that has the authority to deal with these issues to kind of push them through is also the thing that spooked people once it became a more publicly known phenomenon. So I think they're trying to thread this difficult needle that doesn't excuse the marketing issues, like nothing stays secret in government that long, certainly if it's not classified. So they had to anticipate that this would have to pass the Washington Post test that is the you know u- ubiquitous threshold of review throughout Washington, D.C. But at the same time, I see there's a little bit of logic behind how they arrived at what seems now like a, such a foolhardy name that fits into what this body was trying to do, where it was trying to do it. We, we've been talking a lot about the, the marketing issue, which is important, obviously. But I mean, I, I do want to spend some time on the on the substance of it. And I, I do want to ask Jeff, because I, I, mean, I think he think you've thought about this a lot and kind of thing more than the rest of us have. I mean, is there any role for government action in, quote unquote, combating disinformation, however, that is defined? Yeah, so that's what I'm. Uh, I've spent the past year writing my next book about that very issue, and I come down very hard on the regulation part of it. I mean, there's very narrow areas where the government can regulate, uh, either through the courts or through administrative agencies, regulate misinformation. And there's good. I, I try to explain why there's good reasons for that. But even when it comes to sort of non-punitive measures. I I think we have to be careful because having the government define the one truth can be very dangerous depending on who's in power at the time. And I I think there are ways to do it. Uh, What I prefer more generally is to give people the tools to be able to better process information. And uh, I mean, that comes down to things like media literacy, What uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, right when she retired, had been uh, talking about for years, which was basically the deterioration of civics education in school, figuring out new ways to fund local, regional, and national news organizations, which have collapsed. Um, I mean, frankly, when you look at some of the studies about January 6th, you see that a lot of the people who really bought into these theories have some substantial mental health problems that were not 
addressed. I mean, and th these are not easy issues, but I think there are other ways. Uh, one, one thing that I do related to January 6th also is I look at the different approaches that judges have to sentencing. And uh, some of the judges uh, basically, and it's not a huge difference in the overall sentence. It's like a few weeks difference, but some of the judges will say, uh, you know, you were just a victim of misinformation and you you were a pawn. And other judges say, you know, that's not an excuse. You you did something bad. You need to be accountable for it. Um, I, I guess I might be old school, but I go with the latter approach that, you know, if you <laughs> it, believing in misinformation is not an excuse, if you do something bad, uh, you need to be held to account. So I think there are ways to deal with this that get away from sort of narrowing the First Amendment. I know many people disagree with me on that. Uh, but but I do get very concerned, even if you think, you know, this won't be abused right now. Uh, everyone who's in power right now might not be in power in a few years in the judiciary and the executive branch and Congress. So I think taking a longer term view is pretty important. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I know, Jeff, you, you've made this point, but if you want to, it's I think it's useful to kind of, you know, red team any proposal and say, okay, what happens if, you know, under the the second Trump or the first DeSantis administration, <laughs> right? And this is, it's digging back into my family history, somewhat personal for me because I have a, a relative who in 1917 was prosecuted under the Espionage and Draft Act for handing out anti-draft pamphlets against World War One, right? So that's a great example of how things can go uh, extremely wrong. And I do think that you know, the fact that we are in a situation where the basics of what constitutes truth is, or, you know, so much in doubt is ironically both an example of why, you know, everyone seems to be running around saying, oh God, somebody do something and a reason why, you know, we all need to be extremely careful before somebody does something. And so, you know, in some sense, I, you know, there's maybe something good in that DHS is clearly taking this seriously, but maybe, you know, look before they leap a little bit next time. Well, talking about efforts to restrain disinformation, let's talk about some efforts to kind of pump it up a little bit, um, at least by some accounts. Because the New York Times over the last few days has released a pretty epic three-part investigatory series looking at Tucker Carlson and his eponymous Fox News show and other media productions. The pieces are very thoroughly researched. They do a very large canvas, I think over a thousand episodes of the show that they watched and digested and appear to have coded or at least analyzed in some systematic fashions where they've identified strong trends of not just strongly racially oriented, racist, uh, I think most people would call it, uh, rhetoric at various points and framings, buying into a lot of conspiracy theories, perspectives that could lend themselves to, uh, at least of some views, violence or incitement to violence that are at a level beyond what even Fox News does in its ordinary course, uh, and that Carlson has appeared to proceed with pretty un burdened and bridled by Fox News Network, um, at least in part, you know, it's it's strongly suggested because we're a strong relationship um, with Fox News owner in the Murdoch family and, and executives. This is kind of an interesting set of stories for a couple of reasons. One, it is a, an amazing overview of a part of the media market that I do not get exposed to except through occasional clips. I think a lot of people who don't buy into Carlson's worldview or aren't at least open to aspects of it don't necessarily digest it at this level and to have it all kind of laid out in front of you, which is, which is at this point, a huge volume of material is kind of amazing. And then on the flip side of it, you're at the same, kind of elevating some of these views. You know, you are giving this individual who is very much a provocateur, very much somebody who's sees their role as trying to get their views out there to get clicks, to get eyes on them, does lots of things to get attention. And this is giving them more attention, kind of the most attention you can possibly get, which is, I think, three days on the front page of the New York Times. I don't know if it was on the front page all three days, but prominently located in New York Times, front page, certainly on the home page. Um, Tucker Carlson himself, I saw, tweeted a picture out of him holding up the headline and laughing gleefully, which, uh, you know, I don't know exactly how we're supposed to take that, but it certainly suggests that maybe there is a silver lining in some of this coverage for him, or at least he's framing it that way. 
Quinta, let me start with you on this. You know, how should we be thinking about this? What do we learn from this piece? And how much do those benefits outweigh what cost there might be? Are Is there a downsides for giving this much attention and profile to provocateurs like Carlson? The debate that you point to about, you know, to what extent should we cover people with noxious views, which I think the reporting does a pretty good job at establishing that Carlson does indeed have plenty of views that I am very comfortable describing as deeply racist, is an important one and one that I think the press has gotten better about or more thoughtful about in recent years. I feel quite comfortable in saying that this is a situation where the horse has really left the barn. And you're not giving it more attention that it wouldn't have already gotten by reporting on it. You know, in going back to our discussions about disinformation, in the sort of early days of the press covering disinformation post-2016, there were a lot of cases where, you know, uh, a paper would write about some instance of supposed Russian disinformation that was like a GeoCities page Um, or like a Twitter account with two followers. And it was deeply unclear whether that did anything other than just direct people to something they wouldn't have otherwise been able to find. In this case, I mean, Tucker Carlson Tonight is, I think, the most popular show or one of the most popular shows on Fox. It's broadcast across the country to millions of people. There are an enormous amount of fans. It's hard for me to argue that the Times is giving it prevalence that it wouldn't already had. Rather, I think what the story does a very good job, and it's extremely well reported by Nick Confessore, is contextualizing Carlson's rise and digging into the rhetoric that he has come to use and sort of how he's come to really take and seize power at Fox um, in the the post-Roger Ailes universe and how he's become kind of a lodestar of Republican politics as a sort of related but alternative power center to Trump. So I, I have no quibble whatsoever with the the fact that the story was written or the way that it was written. I think the the question it raises to me that is really interesting is, you know, we were talking about disinformation, um, I think sort of implicitly in the context of, you know, material flying around the internet that's been unverified and so on. What this story does a really good job of showing is first how the Tucker Carlson team will often, uh, according to the Times, take material from extremist websites Um, and essentially put it on the show. They have a really good example of how that worked in terms of a a series of broadcasts Carlson did about uh, supposed violence against white South African farmers that was um, not really grounded in fact. And then how, you know, this is is a, a mainstream news network, whether we like it or not. I mean, it is extreme, but it is, it's, you know, essentially legacy media. It's a cable network. People turn on their television to watch it. If we're concerned about falsehoods and disinformation, this is not disinformation that's coming because people boot up Twitter. It's coming because they sit down and watch cable TV after dinner. And I think that is actually a a much harder problem to deal with. Yeah. So... I read the first article when I, on Sunday, and then I read the rest of them yesterday after I agreed to come on this podcast. And I think they were very well reported. I re- I'm a former journalist, so I refer to these types of story- series as December 29th stories because they tend to be the the big packages that newspapers tend to run. The last few days of December, which is the deadline for the Pulitzers and all the other journalism contests. And I always question how many people read the December 29th series fully. And I think particularly with this, again, I think it was really well reported. I think that it taught me some new things about Tucker Carlson and Fox News, but I don't know what impact it is going to have. Uh, on the debate because sort of the dedicated New York Times readers who are going to be reading this anyway, I kind of feel like they're they're on that page already. Uh, One thing I will note, and this kind of even gets back to the first topic, is I have gotten increasingly number of comments from people saying, uh, you know, why doesn't the FCC regulate the misinformation on Tucker Carlson's show? Uh, and I, oh boy. <laughs> I, I, I try to explain to them that first, the FCC has no statutory authority to regulate the content of a cable TV network. And even if it did, it 
would not have the constitutional authority to go in and say Tucker Carlson is spreading misinformation. That's not satisfactory to many people. At one point a few weeks ago, I actually somehow got Ajit Pai, who was the FCC, former FCC chairman, in on the discussion. And I said, hey, do you did you ever regulate cable news? And he said, no, the FCC can't regulate cable news. And he was told that he didn't know what he was talking about. So I, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of people who really think the solution to Tucker Carlson is regulation. And I would disagree with that. Yeah, Jeff, I really like the point you made actually about the December 29th pieces, because I actually think that gets at part of what really struck me about this series as I was reading it and kind of rereading it for the podcast with a little bit more of a critical eye. And it's less about the series itself, which again, I think is actually excellently reported and a fantastic read and the reporters deserve a lot of credit, but the way it's packaged and presented, which feeds into, or at least reflects, I think, kind of like the kind of perverse media incentives that are out there that kind of facilitate a lot of misinformation, or at least the ecosystem which misinformation thrives, right? Like if you were aiming to impact this, right? If this were an impact-oriented piece in terms of like, this is a policy problem and we need to address it, would you put it together into three, you know, thousands where I didn't count how many words, but I would guess each of these is probably four to 5,000 word pieces, uh, or at least the first two are, um, pretty lengthy, lengthy newspaper articles um, as far as they go, as opposed to maybe breaking it up into a series of sustained coverage over a period of time. Um, doesn't mean you can't do one or the other, but it does strike me as a particular package, particularly after this is like obviously a long reporting stream they've done, um, releasing them all over the course of like just a matter of days too, instead of spreading out a particular period um, where they may get more attention or put more pressure on. And then there's a whole framing of the whole report and particularly of the media that's attached to it, images and otherwise, it's very Tucker Carlson centered. And that's interesting. Like it's a good story. It's a compelling narrative because he's an weird guy and it's interesting to read about but is that the most like part, bigger part of the problem that people don't know about or that public scrutiny would help to address and i'm not sure it is i kind of suspect frankly if instead of pictures of tucker carlson you put pictures of the fox news executives who run the program and pictures of the uh you know well murdoch family probably is used to it at this point but other people involved in the support the permission structure that allows Tucker Carlson to do these things, which is as big, if not a bigger part of the problem than Carlson himself, because uh, Carlson could go away and somebody else could step into that boat as long as there's an opportunity there. Those people, I think, probably be a lot less comfortable and there will be a lot less upside for them of getting the sort of attention that comes with the New York Times. But why is New York Times focused on Tucker Carlson? Because it's a good story. It's going to get reads and Tucker Carlson's a known guy that's going to get attention. And so I think that's why you end up with this being a very clickable piece. I don't begrudge New York Times stuff like this. Any media organization has to think about it. Even at Lawfare, we think about these things all the time, even though we're a nonprofit and don't, frankly, like make money off of our websites, unlike the New York Times. But, you know, at the same time, it, it does set up a kind of tricky set of incentives for media organizations about how to approach these issues that you can see just feeds into some element of the problem. I don't think it causes the problem, but it creates a fertile atmosphere in which the problem can can continue to thrive. I don't know. I actually, I'm really disagree here. I mean, I'm, I am definitely a critic of the way that the kind of attention ecosystem works and how coverage by, you know, papers like the New York times can feed into these kinds of things. But I think part of what the story was arguing, and I think it's right, is that Carlson is a unique presence within Fox and how he has managed to shape the network around him and in how he has managed to wield unique and particular power within that network and kind of leverage the incentives that existed. And he's very Trump-like in that way, right? I mean, this is a system that existed before him and he was able to kind of see what particular buttons to press and levers to pull and has made himself particularly powerful and and dangerous within within that. I mean, and, and to your to your first point, I mean, when you say like, outcome oriented. I, I think that that raises a question about what journalism is is for. Is the Times is not going to run a story with, you know, the the explicit goal of getting Tucker Carlson off the air. I mean, nor I think should they. The the goal is that they, you know, they did all this work and they're trying to tell people about it. Now, obviously that's not completely distinct from the incentives that that Jeff has identified in terms of, you know, rolling out a big, a big marquee series. But 
I do think that, you know, the, the power of kind of identifying a particular issue and putting a real spotlight on it in a, in a big series, it does have a, a power all its own and it does signal something all its own. Yeah, I don't disagree with that, Quinton. Just to clarify, like I'm not saying necessarily the New York Times should have approached this from an advocacy perspective, right? That's not the new, the newspaper's role, but all media organizations are existing both in a kind of social role and a market role that just kicks in some different incentives about how to package information that has, you know, externalities that I think can feed into these misinformation, disinformation cycles or empower actors um, that may be pushing those messages because it's so personality focused, click focused, attention grabbing is just such a big part of the industry now. But I won't criticize them for it. It's it's one in which they all have to live in, um, you know, barring the rise of public foundation funded journalism and, and all other solutions that are still a good ways off at any scale. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, I mean, Scott, I, I agree with you that media organizations cannot hide behind this. Well, we're just journalists and we don't, it's not our job to think about the effect of exactly how we frame these stories. And they have to think about that. I do think in this case, though, the story is legitimately about Tucker Carlson. And so I, I think here the incentives for the New York Times, which I totally take Scott's point, are to run a you know, flashy story about a polarizing figure, because that is what the kind of liberal readers of the New York Times want to hate click on over and over again. But at the same time, I think Quinta's right in that he really is legitimately the story here, in part because of how he has bent Fox News to his will, but also in in reflecting the fact that maybe today in our more polarized, more fragmented media landscape, individual personalities are even more important than they were in the past, you know, because you don't need nearly as high of a viewership today to become a dominant voice as you did 20, 30, 40 years ago. And because politics is increasingly being decided by the most extreme of the two parties, right? And I, while I don't think there is anything like a Tucker Carlson of the left, there are certainly the kind of very progressive media pundits on the left that probably have an outsized role in democratic politics as well. And, you know, to, to me, what's, what's just kind of fascinating in the statistic that I sort of keep coming back to is comparing Tucker Carlson, who has 3 million viewers, um, which is a huge number uh, in today's media landscape to someone like father Charles Coughlin, the sort of famous uh, kind of priest and radio commentator in the 1930s, who was this kind of notorious anti-Semite and nativist who had 30 million listeners, right? And this was in 1930 when the population of the country was like half as much as it is now. And I think it just goes to show how much more fragmented this is and how Tucker Carlson, who like fundamentally at the end of, at the, end of the day does not have a huge viewership relative to the public at large, still plays this outsized role because it doesn't take a lot of people to become the plurality voice in the extremist wing of your party, which especially on the right is the one that is driving politics and policy. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that the point that Alan just made about the viewership, I mean, when you compare it to historical nightly news viewership as a percentage of uh, overall TV viewing and media consumption, it is small. And I, I did sort of think through that as I was reading the very good pieces about, you know, I, I worry that this will lead to more viewership. And what Scott was talking about earlier about, you know, was this the best format? 
I'm I'm not entirely sure that it was. Um, I mean, I think it was very good narrative storytelling. I think it could have made a really interesting book. But I also think that, I mean, looking at different formats, like a list of this is particularly what was inaccurate or misleading, and this is comparing it. I, I mean, I, I think some sort of alternate presentation would have been maybe a bit more useful, again, depending on what what you're trying to illustrate and make accessible to readers. I mean, I would be interested to know how many people got through all three pieces, uh, honestly got through all three pieces and not because they had to go talk about it on a podcast. And, and I'm not, I'm not sure what that uh, number would be and how impactful that would be. Yeah. I mean, I will say one thing I found interesting is that the times did do something that they've, I think, they've been doing more and more recently, which is that they, so it's set up as this three piece sequence. And then at least when I read it, there was a fourth piece that was basically like top line takeaways. (laughs) So it wasn't, you know, a list of things that were false or anything like that, but it was kind of, you know, okay, you reader don't have time to read all of this and watch all of the different clips that we've collected. So here are, you know, 10 different bullet points with like the the big things that we think that you need to know. Um, and that is something that I've, I've noticed that the Times has been doing more and more, like for the, the big Trump taxes story um, the other year, which was like an unbelievably long series of articles with good reason. Um, they also published a kind of like bullet pointed bottom line up front version for, for people who didn't have time. So without saying that they necessarily should have, you know, done things one way or the other way, in this case, I do think that, you know, it does seem to me at least like news outlets are experimenting a little more with form in that way. And I think that has definitely, at least I, my impression is that that has been conditioned in part by an understanding that it is harder to get people to pay attention for longer and that there's a need to kind of put things right in people's faces to, to make them understand what's going on. Um, so it is interesting to think about how, how that could have been used differently here or how it might be used in the future to, address similar issues because this is obviously not going away. So um, on rational security, we like to leave for our third topic, something light and breezy and kind of fun to talk about. So obviously we're going to be discussing the threat of nuclear war. Um, So this is something we've talked about a little bit on past shows, but you know, the chatter such as it is about the use of nuclear weapons uh, in the uh, Russia, Ukraine conflict has increased in last week or so. So last week, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov warned that the danger of nuclear war is, quote, serious, real, and we must not underestimate it. Russian President Putin, for his own part, uh, warned about a, quote, lightning fast response to any country that intervenes in Ukraine. Clearly, he's trying to hold the line on uh, NATO's involvement in the conflict. Uh, And uh, maybe in some sense, most strikingly, Uh, Those who watch Russian television have noticed a huge increase in the openness in which Russian TV pundits and commentators talk about nuclear war, are willing to entertain it, support it, almost valorize it at this point. And that's particularly notable, of course, given that at this point, there's no such thing as independent media in Russia. And so I think we should assume that all Russian media is de facto, uh, if not officially, state-owned. This is not great, obviously, but we should ask ourselves, and I'm going to turn to Scott first here. I'm curious your thoughts on this. You know, has the risk of nuclear escalation increased, let's say, in the last week or two relative to what it was when Russia invaded uh, several months ago? And if so, is there any reason to think that there's any sort of rational calculus behind this? You know, how would the use of nuclear weapons, and we should probably also talk a little bit about the distinction between so-called tactical nuclear weapons, which are meant to be used as part of a a military operation on the battlefield versus strategic nuclear weapons, which are meant to destroy cities and sort of be civilization ending. It does seem that the the strategic utility or even tactical utility maybe of tactical nuclear weapons is relatively low, given that anything that you could target with a tactical nuclear weapon, you could presumably just as well target with conventional air or ground forces. So yeah, are we? How much closer are we to Armageddon? And uh, you know why? And is there any reason to think that this is in any sort of self-interest for the Russians? 
Sure. I mean, you know, to start out with, I think a lot of this hinges on the internal reasoning of Vladimir Putin, who is a, a very real black box uh, in terms of 100% knowing what seems rational from his perspective. I don't have a great record of predicting it <laughs> from earlier in the Ukraine conflict. And so I, I think we all need to have a little bit of humility in saying, you know, exactly what the risk is here. And that fact itself is something that I think Russia plays into uh, the fact that people take the possibility of using nuclear weapons seriously, and it can use that as a bit of a deterrent. You can think of it as kind of a variation of mad dog theory that people used to say, oh, you look better. It's more effective to be unpredictable if you're a nuclear power, because it means that people are even less willing to push close to your red lines. I think there's an element of that that Russia engages in very consciously, particularly Putin himself. And then it's also, you know, a part of that that's that's genuinely real to say we are at a moment that is certainly probably the riskiest we've been in regards to a possible nuclear conflict since the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think there are a couple other candidates that might squeeze in there, but this is probably the closest we've gotten to from there. And, and whether it's more or less severe than the Cuban Missile Crisis, I've seen people debate, I suspect, slightly less, but in part because of the restraint the Biden administration and Western allies have shown in refusing to engage directly militarily uh, in the same theater as Russian forces. Does that mean it's right around the corner? I don't, I'm not sure it does. If I had to guess, at least my my sense of where the logic is for Russia is that it makes a lot of sense to talk about the, the nukes a lot, but it has to be a very, very exceptional situation to actually make it worthwhile using it. Russia's biggest fear is that NATO troops, particularly American, but also Western European troops, are going to intervene militarily in Ukraine and other places. We know we've already seen the Ukrainian military, a far inferior military force, has has very very effective in withstanding, and the Russian forces have not been able to withstand their counteroffensives and their uh, own military measures, and they've largely been defeated by Ukrainian military with Western support. I don't think many people looking at this conflict suspect that Russia is going to stand much of a chance in a conventional military conflict against uh, Western forces, um, whether that's in Ukraine, whether it goes into Russia, whether it's somewhere else, depending on how that any sort of conflict like that evolves. And so I think Russia's main focus, one of their main focuses in talking about nuclear stuff is to make very clear, hey, look, Western troops, you guys got to stay out of Ukraine, stay out of this. We're going to draw very clear lines. And the Biden administration has more or less drawn the same lines, but on the other side saying, you're right, we're not going to cross into Ukraine. But any thoughts you may have had about objecting to our buildup on the NATO side of the line is out the window. We are now going to keep engaging in expanding NATO into Finland and Sweden, potentially, and put troops more along our border, the kind of easternmost border of NATO member countries than we have had in recent memory, because you are a threat and we're going to take that threat seriously. And paraphrasing Biden's word, really lay down the law and go to the mat to defend our NATO allies, even if we're not engaging specifically in the theater of Ukraine. That's been the tentative, you know, equilibrium that's been existing throughout this conflict. And there's actually not really many signs that it's going to tip one way or the other anytime soon. That's what makes the return of Western diplomats, I think, actually, as we discussed last week, a notable step to some extent, because it is kind of something that you could see. Well, now all of a sudden you have U.S. and Western personnel and Russian personnel overlapping in the same combat theater, but that's relatively limited. I, I, I don't think you're going to see Western troops moving into Ukraine anytime soon for this reason. Um, as long as that equilibrium holds, Russia, I don't think, has much incentive because as soon as they use a tactical nuclear weapon, that equilibrium breaks. And that means what Western troops may do, Western states may do in response becomes much less predictable. Um, and there's a downside of that for Russia. Russia could nuke a lot of different places uh, and use tactical nukes, but that's begging other sorts of responses from Western states, conventional nuclear or otherwise. And there's a lot of different places where Western states could put more pressure on Russia militarily or otherwise. So right now, you know, in light of these the current objectives, it just doesn't seem like it would make a lot of sense for Putin to pursue that. An interesting part of this conversation I do think it's worth talking about is how the United States, though, should frame that line. Um, there's a debate going on right now in Congress about uh, an authorization for use of military force and AUMF that uh, Adam Kinzinger has introduced basically saying, well, we should empower the president to use military force against Russia if and when Russia engages in the use of chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons to serve as a deterrent so that Russia knows there's a real military threat of the Biden administration acting in such occasions, unhindered by any constitutional concerns there may be about whether that's within the president's constitutional authority or not. Big question as to whether it is or isn't. People would disagree about that. The Biden administration may feel like it doesn't need that authorization, but certainly it indicates strong political support uh, and, a, and a lower political bar for the Biden administration to do that if you enact a law like that. You know, I, I, a lot of people reacted very strongly and negatively to that sort of step. And I'm I'm 
think it's something that we need to think about more carefully. I'm not sure this is the right moment or that's the right bill. Uh, I think there are technical issues with it, uh, among other issues. But it's worth thinking about saying, well, well, what is the point at which we have to start thinking about drawing a line and saying, this? there is an escalation cost to this Vladimir Putin, and you need to take that seriously. And maybe we're getting to the point of the conflict as Russia becomes closer to defeat and closer to losing its strategic objectives, even the more modest ones it's ratcheted back to, where we need to start increasing those escalation threats uh, or the cost of escalation precisely because the temptation of escalation is going to get greater. And, and we are approaching that moment close. I'm not sure we're quite there yet. I think that's the delicate and the really difficult question there is how to calibrate um, those sorts of pressures as the conflict evolves. So, so this is a, this is very far from my field of expertise, despite where I work, uh, and I, I deal with. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Uh, so, I have more of a question for you folks who know this far better than I do, which is, at what point does what Russia says? What what point does it lose any credibility of a threat whatsoever? I mean, at what point are they? crying wolf. It just seems like as someone who follows it, but doesn't study it, it feels like it's pretty frequent that there's another threat. And I'm wondering what, how, how do we sort through all of this and determine what, what actually is something to take seriously and what's just sort of a bunch of hot air? Yeah. I had the same question actually, because I mean, it, along with this rhetoric about using nuclear weapons. We also had Sergei Lavrov, who's the foreign minister, going around saying that, you know, the fact that Zelensky is Jewish doesn't mean that he's not a Nazi because Hitler also had Jewish blood, which is, and then the Russian foreign ministry doubling down on this. So, I mean, it, it I have been unclear about whether to read these statements about nuclear weapons seriously or whether to read them as part of Russian foreign policy and the sort of propaganda wing of the Russian state just going increasingly kooky, um, which I mean, th- maybe those things, they're, they're, they meet at some point and there's a there's a overlap in that Venn diagram, but it is it has been genuinely unclear to me. I think those are really good questions. And and Russia is definitely at a risk by virtue of the fact that it keeps trotting out this nuclear threat in kind of veiled terms doesn't really appear to be backed up by that much like cohesive sort of action in taking these steps, but except perhaps in this escalation of rhetoric, particularly in the public sphere. Um, I know there was a report, I think in the last week, the Russian state media, somebody suggesting that uh, they could use submarine-based nuclear missiles to attack the United Kingdom. I think, you know, sink Ireland by blowing a hole in it was suggested at one point. It didn't make a lot of sense, but that's okay. There is this sort of rhetoric. But again, I, I think we have to be very calibrated about it you know, Russia may be abusing it. And I think a lot of time Russia deploys this not for international reasons, but for domestic reasons, that they're facing what is increasingly apparent even to domestic audiences is a real military quagmire in Ukraine at a minimum. Um, you know, it's hard to hide the number of casualties and fatalities that, the, that they're having here. If they really do declare open wars, people are reporting that they might in this next week, which means they will start conscripting people and opening up reserves. It's going to become even harder to hide the costs of this conflict and the fact that they're losing it. You know, that becomes a moment where they say, well, Russians, you may feel afraid about this, but we still have nuclear weapons. Remember, we're still a world power. That's a big part of what we need to talk about domestically. Internationally, though, that waters down the message and makes it less strong to really use as a credible threat. I think there are other things Putin probably thinks he can do to make that threat more credible, moving some of these weapons into the field, testing them more reliably, strategically positioning them, frankly, throwing a bunch of chatter about considering how we would use them and why into their internal communication streams that obviously Americans are monitoring very closely and reporting out that will spook them. And so I think there's lots of other steps up the escalation ladder Putin still has. But there's also a risk on the other side. I was watching this is that we as kind of a public, as a voting public, as a politically active and vocal public, and particularly in the commentariat, you know, there's a risk that we're going to become overly inured to it. And the idea that, oh, yeah, Russians will never do this. They're just all bluster. That is foolhardy. That is not a step. And you hear it a lot and increasingly these days. It, it is foolhardy to assume Russia will never get to a point where they will actually do something like this. And we have no basis for believing that. It is true that we shouldn't take every time they make, mention nuclear weapons as a sign of impending doom. But that doesn't mean you can go to the other end of the pendulum as well and just start ignoring all of it. There is a very different language of escalation that we should be taking much more seriously that right now we're not speaking in. But it's still within the realm of possibility. You know, I, Scott, I, I agree with you that we, we can't discount this. I just don't 
see the obvious response other than sort of ignore Russia and keep doing what the United States is doing. Because the United States has, again, declared and is will be following its own pretty clear red line, which is that the United States or NATO will almost certainly not be entering Ukraine as an active combatant. It will be continuing and to some extent ramping up the very effective strategy that it has undertaken thus far, which is just flooding Ukraine with as many weapons as the Ukrainians can use. And that seems to be enough. Ukrainian morale is still very high. They have plenty of manpower. They're a very large country. And the status quo is leading kind of inevitably to some sort of effective Russian defeat because the Russians just cannot, it seems, overcome the Ukrainian defenses, especially if they're continued to be supplied by the West. It doesn't matter how many more conscripts you throw at the problem, especially since the Russian government is just going to go bankrupt at some point. Um, you know, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but certainly in a matter of, of months, given the, the financial sanctions that are going on. So then the question becomes, maybe what Putin is doing is threatening the use of nuclear weapons unless the West abandons Ukraine. But that seems very unlikely, both for I mean, I don't know, call it emotional reasons. We, we are very invested in, you know, supporting the Ukrainians in this. But also just for this, the, the long-term strategic reason that if we allow Russia to use nuclear blackmail to take over a neighboring country, right, then all bets are off for the future of European security, right? And, and there, the risk of nuclear escalation becomes something that you have to balance against the risk of Russia invading then Poland, the Baltic states, Romania, Georgia, uh, and, and so on. So I don't really see what flexibility the, the United States or the West really has here, except for just ignoring these Russian threats and continuing the status quo, which seems like the right answer, but is, of course, disconcerting because anytime the risk of nuclear weapons is greater than zero, that's obviously quite scary. Right. I mean, I think this also gets to the the problem that we're kind of seeing as the war drags on, which is that there's not, no, no one's going to give in here, right? I mean, Putin has blocked himself into a position where he, he can't back down. Zelensky obviously is not going to back down, nor should he. The West is not going to back down. And so it does seem like we're, we're sort of in this weird stasis that is itself deeply unstable but can't go away anytime soon. I think I think that's kind of right, but the way, the role that I think nuclear weapons play into this is the stable element of it, which is the line that the Biden administration and European allies haven't crossed and that Putin hasn't crossed, which is they haven't crossed into Ukraine itself with troops. Um, they will impose economic sanctions that are unprecedented. They will provide unprecedented levels of support to the Ukrainians, um, but they're not going to put troops in that theater. And Putin doesn't seem to be moving up the nuclear ladder because he's worried that that's the line that's going to drive them to change that policy. That's the one stable part of this conflict that does seem in place. And in some ways, it's some of the most important part. I think certainly the Biden administration seems to see it as the most important part. I kind of suspect Putin does as well um, if you if, if he is uh, some element of a rational actor uh, in the end, which I, I tend to think he is. So that's why I think you're going to see this being a persistent part of this conflict and that that's also part of why it's unlikely to escalate significantly along the nuclear dimension. Chemical and biological may be a slightly different question, um, but on the nuclear dimension, at least, um, so long as that kind of status quo is in place. Um, but whether that's enough to end this conflict, that's the big open question. It very well might not be, at least not for an extended period of time. Um, that's why other tools come in, other sources of pressure like economic sanctions and support the Ukrainians and also diplomacy, trying to find avenues towards reaching some sort of negotiated settlement. You know, I don't think that there's a lot of space for that. International law doesn't necessarily leave a lot of space for that because it's not easy to give up your territory in response to a uh, military assault uh, that's unlawful under international law. And I'm not sure Ukrainians are or should be inclined to do so. Um, but some sort of ceasefire, some sort of negotiated step towards some sort of outcome, hopefully you can facilitate with diplomacy. Um, and diplomacy is going to look more appealing the more this conflict drags on and both sides get, and particularly the Russian side, gets more exhausted, hopefully. That's just the cheerful wrap-up we needed. I know. Well, on that cheery note, we will have to leave our conversation there for the week. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think about over the course of the week to come. Alan, why don't you get us started? Yeah, so um, 
after you listen to our musings about nuclear war, what I think you will need is a stiff drink. And so my object lesson is such a thing. I'm stealing a little bit here from, uh, from Scott, though I'm, I'm not offering a cocktail recipe. I'm offering uh, my, uh, well, I guess you can't come and get it, but uh, I, was, I went to my uh, neighbors for a kind of backyard bonfire because uh, yesterday, May 2nd, was the first warm day that we've had in Minnesota because we live in the tundra. Um, and I got to try my neighbor's homemade distilled apple brandy which was delicious, but not just regular apple brandy. He took some of it and then he put a ghost pepper in it for two weeks. And so what this came sounds out, amazing. it was amazing. It was, it was, it, it tasted like brandy and it had this incredible like capsaicin burn that like smacks you in the face, but then immediately goes away, just leaves your mouth kind of nice and tingly. It was a very, very cool experience. So, you know, I think that should inspire all of us to go and buy a, a, a bottle of, of something and then get some ghost peppers or other mixins and, uh, you know, flavor your own stuff. I've, I've experimented a little bit here and there. I have a pear tree in my backyard, so I made some pretty tasty pear liqueur last, uh, last year, uh, which, was, which was fun. Uh, but I think I might be going the, the spicy route. It's a, it's a pretty cool combination. I will say just as a quick follow-up from uh, last week or the week before when I talked about my home tapache recipe and I mentioned throwing a habanero in there. Tread lightly on that because I have learned that, in fact, even one habanero can really throw the whole thing in a much spicier direction than you anticipated. So the key is tread to, lightly. The key is to rub your eyes aggressively after you've handled them. <laughs> I got a gallon of this stuff, and I do not know what I'm going to do with it because it is a very spicy sipper. But we'll see. Cocktail potential still, but as a sipper, it's, it, has lost, it has lost a little bit of its uh, potability. Quinta, why don't I turn to you next? So my object lesson is less cheerful. So as per our, our intro, it certainly looks like the Supreme Court is set to overturn Roe v. Wade at the end of this term. There's been a lot of incredible reporting about what this would mean for women and people across the U.S. who uh, can get pregnant. The Atlantic has a, a story from a few months ago that I would really recommend uh, by Jessica Bruder called The Future of Abortion in a Post-Roe America which is a really stunningly reported piece at sort of underground and semi-underground or perhaps soon-to-be-underground networks of people, mostly women, who have been working on ensuring access to abortion and reproductive health care outside the space of clinics, including not only medical abortions, but also um, all sorts of contraptions that uh, I, at least a few years ago, would have said that we would not have needed to know about. So I think that it's a, a useful and sobering read. Aspects of it are extremely depressing, but I think there's also value in taking a look at it and remembering the enormous amount of people who are working incredibly hard to ensure that people do have access to reproductive care. So I would recommend that as a read. Well, I am going to recommend a piece of reading along a similar lines. Um, this is going to be one that I'm sure some people will not like, but I think it's an interesting read and worth revisiting uh, and a thoughtful one. And that is an article from 1973, I believe it was, uh, in the Yale Law Journal uh, by John Hart Ely, uh, who is a uh, eminent legal scholar who died somewhat tragically young and so may not have quite the public profile. I'm also never sure whether I'm saying his last name right, but I think it's Ely and not Eli, uh, but I've heard it done both ways. Um, but he wrote an article called The Wages of Crying Wolf, which is actually a very devastating critique of Roe versus Wade, the original decision that came out just a few months before he published this article, even though the author himself is somebody who was a advocate for uh, abortion, access to abortion uh, and abortion rights, although I think he's has got some, some skeptical, uh, he's very skeptical of the constitutional basis articulating Roe v. Wade, uh, although he's a little more open to other constitutional bases. Uh, it's an interesting read because we're entering a moment um, where we may be in a post-Roe v. Wade or at least a significantly narrowed Roe v. Wade universe shortly once this draft opinion that uh, we opened our episode talking a, a little bit about the leaking of is released in whatever its final form might be. Uh, and it's interesting to go back and read a fairly thoughtful, not just critique of Roe, but also a vision about how this terrain looked prior to Roe uh, and for people who grew up in the pre-Roe constitutional and legal landscape. Because in some ways, that's where we're headed back to. And it's a more complicated landscape that folks of our generation, lawyers, uh, women, people affected by this, haven't 
uh, very different from the one that we've grown up in. And uh, I think it's a, a useful perspective to go back and look at uh, and to get a little sense of where we may be headed. So on that somewhat dour note uh, from me as well, uh, I will be back to cocktails next week. I promise, guys. Uh, Jeff, let me hand it over to you. Okay. Well, I'll have a slightly happier object lesson. And that is, uh, so I was on Twitter getting yelled at about how fires and crowded theaters and all, all the fun stuff I usually get yelled at about and really depressed. <laughs> Jeff, and, you, you getting yelled at on Twitter is overdetermined. And as, yeah, as someone who follows you and loves you on Twitter. But but then something amazing happened. Uh, when I follow a few of my favorite musicians. Uh, one of them who doesn't tweet all that often is Patty Griffin, who is fantastic. Uh, I first saw her play, it was in 2002 in Portland. She did a four musician concert with Dar Williams, Mary Chapin Carpenter, and Sean Colvin. And ever since then, uh, Patty Griffin is one of my favorites. Uh, she tweeted that uh, she found during the pandemic, she found some old home recordings of songs that she never released. Uh, and she's putting them out in an album that's coming out next month. Uh, you can pre-order it. If you do, you get the first song uh, already. Uh, it's available. Uh, the album is called Tape. As you can imagine, it's perhaps not the best sound quality. It's better sound quality than my neighbor mowing the lawn next door. Uh, but, you know, frankly, I would listen to her singing my grocery list in the middle of the supermarket. She is so fantastic highly highly recommended it's not getting going to get much publicity because that's not what she does so i want to do a public service before it comes out next month i i don't think it would be the best starter album for her so she has a very large catalog i would recommend flaming red living with ghosts a thousand kisses trust me on this uh it is a great way to escape from all of the chaos and nonsense going on right now that is an object lesson that captures the spirit of object lessons. That's well done. <laughs> well done. Well, with that, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our forthcoming podcast series on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the allies we left behind entitled Allies, which is premiering later this month. Be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Shellen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, and our special guest, Jeffrey Kossoff, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 